Hello, and welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed professional counselor with over a decade of experience. And this is Trisha, and I'm hoping we don't have a gronk situation today. A gronk situation? A computer breakdown. Oh yeah, that would be bad. Yeah, um, I've got two going, and one of them kind of is slow and crappy, so. Right, and I'm on my own over here too. Yeah, we've got a lot of, oh, I was going to take a picture of us actually for our Instagram to be like, hey, we're actually recording again because it's been a minute. It has been. Ready? Oh, crap. Hold on. One more time. Sorry, guys. (laughs) There we go. Okay. Anyways, we are back after a small hiatus um, because Courtney and I have been busy. There's been a lot going on. Yeah, we've got, I've got school starting on Monday, so tomorrow. And, and I've got school starting a week from Monday. Yep. And we've got our classes registered and all that stuff. And um, yeah, cr- you've been kind of off for the summer for work, but now it's starting full up right. the yep. same week your school's starting. Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. So. And I've gone been back at work now for four or five weeks at my new job. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just telling Courtney, I'm learning so much there. Like the world of advocacy for children is just a crazy world I can imagine yeah Yeah. it's very much needed uh but it is just yeah I it's I don't think most people understand what's happening right in their backyard basically with the children that are being abused and exploited and neglected and all that but I digress. We are on a new case today, but before that, I've got a question for you, Courtney. All right, go ahead. What's your favorite dinosaur? Ooh, that's a good question. I don't think I've asked it before. I don't think you have. I think if I had to pick one, knowing that I know very little about dinosaurs in reality, um... I really like the good old Stegosaurus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that um, Sarah in Land Before Time? No, she's a Triceratops. Oh. It's Spike. Spike. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's like my go-to for dinosaur. <laughs> I mean, even more than Jurassic Park. Uh-huh. Because I feel like that's a millennial movie for sure. It definitely it is. Was so good. <laughs> oh my and goodness. then they made like 27 too many of them. I've only seen the first one, I oh. believe. The second one's good. But then I think after that, it all just like... It went downhill. It did. Well, so if I'm going to go off... The, I mean, of course, Littlefoot, but I I like Ducky. I don't know what Ducky was. Oh, okay. But I also like the pterodactyls, Petrie, the flying. Yeah, I like the flying ones too. Yeah. I'm not sure, to be honest. Um, I used to love dinosaurs as a kid. I always was like trying to dig up fossils on the playground. Oh. I feel like... I don't know if they still do, but they did a... a big section on dinosaurs like kindergarten first grade or at least when I was Mm. in school Mm. I don't remember if we did or not Mm. well anyways that was my question that's a fun one I like it (sighs) well so now we are on to a big case and one that I've put off because I just knew he was going to really give me the yuckies inside and he did he did not um let me down in that way, and that is going to be John Wayne Gacy. All right. You've all been waiting for him. The killer clown. Yes. The asshat doucher 
of Chicago. All the things. I mean, I, I, yeah, that does nothing to describe him. Um, and part of the reason that I was fascinated by John Wayne Gacy and also hesitant was that he is one of the most manipulative grooming males that I feel like we've studied. Right. Right. Yeah. And it's just heartbreaking to see these kids who are naive and trusting get maligned by this guy. I mean, it's hard to see. I mean, any killer that targets kids or, you know, teenagers Mm -hmm. is especially icky. Right. Um, So anyways, the book that we're using for this is uh, Inside the Mind of a Serial Killer, Buried Dreams by Tim Cahill, C-A-H-I-L-L, and it's based upon the investigatory (laughs) reporting of Russ Ewing. Sorry, I I just butchered that. Uh, I also watched the John Wayne Gacy tapes. You did too? I did, yes. Yeah, so those were interesting. Uh, I might reference them a few times just because he... um, the things he says are wild yeah. sometimes. Yeah, yeah. So anyways, without further ado, unless, Courtney, you want to say anything before I start? Nope, go ahead. Okay. Well, John Wayne Gacy was, oh, sorry, my computer screwed up, was born at Edgewater Hospital in Chicago, Illinois, on March 17th, 1942. Is it Illinois or Illinois? Illinois. Illinois, okay. Which is coincidentally St. Patrick's Day. So he's born on St. Patrick's Day. He's the middle child and only son of John Stanley Gacy and Marion Elaine Gacy. Her maiden name was Robinson. His sisters were named Joanne and Karen. His father was an auto repair mechanic uh, and World War I veteran, and his mother was a homemaker. That's per Wikipedia. I did use Wikipedia for this one and Murderpedia. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of info on John Wayne Gacy. A common theme that Gacy will experience is said quite, nightly, quite nicely in the book, quote, a bright green Pollock. His father's son, anxious to please, hungry for praise, but never quite good enough for the old man. So we're going to see that's how John Wayne Gacy feels throughout this. And it's going to be kind of interesting because, you know, most of the time it's the mother that the killer has a, or this, you know, future serial killer has a problem with. But in this case, it's very much the father. And I wonder if that has anything to do with his, you know, target when he gets older. So right out of the gate, we have a middle child, the only boy, and one who pretty quickly realizes he can never live up to his father's expectations. Courtney? You know, moms do tend to get a bad rap in the minds of serial killers, Mm -hmm. but many of the fathers are just as bad. You know, and in this case, we have a very masculine father with high hopes for his only son to follow in his footsteps. And as we'll see, John just did not fulfill these hopes. Right. John Sr., who Gacy may have referred to as the old man in the book, he was always calling him the old man. So if I say that on occasion, that's who we're talking about. Because again, we've got the John Jr., John Sr. type situation going on. But he was really strict and frequently used a razor strop on the children. Uh, I had to Google what that was because I wasn't positive. I was pretty sure, but For reference, that's the leather strip that's used to sharpen straight razors. And when he was two years old, just a few weeks after Karen was born, John Sr. flipped out at the dinner table. He picked up food and threw it at his wife's face, then struck her so hard in the face that her dental bridge fell out. There was blood everywhere, and she ran into the street and fell to the ground. A neighbor saw this and yelled, quote, don't hit her again. I'm calling the police. 
Marion did leave for a short time, but had nowhere else to go, and so she returned. John's earliest memory about his sexual experience was when he was four years old. He claims that a 15-year-old girl, who was possibly mentally disabled, took little John to a prairie and took his pants off and played with his genitals. John told his mom, who told his dad, and an argument ensued. Later in 1949, when John was about seven years old, he and a neighbor boy said, or he and a neighbor boy and the boy's little sister were all found naked and the two boys were, quote, messing with the little girl. John was beaten for that when his dad was made aware. Courtney, can you talk to us about this kind of thing occurring with youth? Some of this is just natural, but what are some of the things you want to share? So I'm starting to learn about problematic sexual behavior in children at my new job. So any thoughts on that? So it is normal for young children to be curious about their bodies and the bodies of others. And so typical behavior might include showing each other what parts they have, um, some exposure of genitals during play, like for example, if you're playing doctor, that kind of thing. And, you know, a little bit of self-gratification here and there. It's totally normal. Um, It is not normal, however, for a 15-year-old to touch a 4-year-old's genitals, whether she had a developmental delay or not. Um, And any sort of sexual touching, whether that's touching each other's genitals with hands, touching them to each other, or like kissing or using their mouths, any of that is not typical child behavior. However, excessive exposure to their own or exposing other people's genitals, um, like pulling their pants down or things like that, Um, any type of sexual behavior or talking about sexual topics, those are all common behaviors in children who have experienced sexual abuse. And so that would be something that if that presented in a clinical setting, you'd want to look into to see what's going on to make them have those problems. Definitely. Yeah. So if little John came to me as a therapist, um, after he was caught with, you know, the, the brother or the friend and the friend's sister, Mm -hmm. I would probably be like, okay, what's going on here? Yeah. So, John also claims that when he was nine, a family friend of his father's would take little John for rides in his truck. He horsed around with him, tickled him, wrestled with him, and somehow his small face would always end up in the older man's crotch. John knew that he was being treated the way he had treated the girl he got in trouble for. He didn't tell his parents about these occasions with the older man. He didn't want to get into trouble. Quote, John remembered that he dreaded the man, his truck, the little drives. He hated to be messed with. The man was a contractor, and John would become a contractor. Do you think that's a coincidence? I mean, ending up as a contractor could be just a coincidence, or not. Okay. During this time period, John stole his mom's underwear and put it in a paper bag, and he hid it under the porch in the sandbox where little John liked to play. John claims he did not know why he took his mother's underwear. He told his parents he just liked the feel of them. He was beaten for that, and John feels that they, that may have been the pivotal incident where his dad stopped trying to accept him. When he was 15, his sister found more underwear in his bed. John vaguely remembers that his mom made him wear them, hoping to break him of this habit. Courtney, was it BTK that stole his mom's underwear? What do you think the motivation was for little John to have done this? How about the punishments he received for doing it? So yes, you're right. BTK, a.k.a. Dennis Rader, did steal his mom's underwear. Um, And stealing underwear from female families is actually pretty common for boys who end up with sexual problems later. Uh, You know, for some, it's 
a fetish, you know, feeling sexually aroused by the object itself, underwear in this case. For others, it's a way of feeling close to or in control, in a way, of the owner of the underwear, um, or as a souvenir to remember a sexual encounter. For John, it very well could be that he just liked the feeling of them when he was younger, and they sort of became sexual objects as he got older. I mean, let's be real, teenage boys will masturbate with all sorts of things. Um, And as for his punishments, we've seen many times before that violence and humiliation are not effective at stopping unwanted behavior, and if anything, they just create more problems. John spoke again of a memory he had when he was four, when his father got very mad at him because he messed up the order of some parts from an object that his dad was taking apart. He developed a fear after this incident of certain things, mechanical things. He was terrified of fire trucks, for one. Seeing seeing one at first scared him, then just hearing the siren would cause him to hide under the porch. John said that even the neighborhood kids would scare him. He became a frightened boy. John and his dad's relationship continued to deteriorate. His dad became pretty paranoid, always convinced people were stealing from him. Even if he found a tool that he accused John of taking or even another adult of taking, he wouldn't acknowledge that he was wrong. He thought he was never wrong. Everyone else was stupid and inadequate. No one could live up to his standards. It doesn't sound like little John was the only one that his father couldn't stand. There may have been a physical reason for John Sr.'s anger. Apparently, he had a blood clot in his brain, and when he drank, the clot or tumor, whatever it was, um, would be pressed against by the blood vessels, making him angry. I don't know how scientific this explanation is, but it's what Gacy claims. So I actually looked this up because I was curious about if it had any validity at all. Um, And so if he did actually have a brain tumor, um, since alcohol causes inflammation in the body it would potentially be possible that increased inflammation could put pressure on the the brain where the tumor is, possibly. Um, But with a blood clot, um, prolonged alcohol use can actually increase um, the platelet buildup in the blood, and that is what causes blood clots. So there might be some bit of truth to that, that the more he drank, like, the worse it got. But It's just as, if not more likely, that dad was kind of just an asshole and drinking brought out the worst in him. And maybe he got migraines or something like that. One of John's friends said that in regards to John's relationship with his dad, quote, I can remember once being at the house when his dad came up from the basement, started swinging and yelling at him, and his mother stepped in, tried to protect him. John would never strike his father. He always just put up his hands and tried to protect himself, end quote. So apparently there was no provocation to these attacks by John's father. John claims to have been a sick child. Apparently John, quote, moved his bowels when he was born, which almost killed him. I googled what that meant. What happens if a baby has a bowel movement during labor? If your baby poops in the womb or during the birthing process, they might develop a dangerous lung condition called meconium aspiration. Babies are at risk for passing meconium before birth if the mother has preeclampsia. The labor or delivery is particularly stressful. That was from WebMD. I don't know if I made that very clear what I just said. But apparently it's a dangerous thing when that happens. So he then claims that he was born with an enlarged bottleneck heart. And I looked this up as well. And that appears to just be cardiomegaly, which is a heart condition that can be dangerous. John was not able to play sports because of this. And that was another disappointment to his father. 
Quote, so I was a disappointment to my dad because I was weak and he was strong. He hated the weak person, even in emotions. We'd go to funerals for someone in the family, and he'd never get tears in his eyes. At a party, he'd never laugh. A strong, somber individual. Emotion was a weakness. Physical illness, even when it couldn't be helped, was a weakness. I remember once he was so sick he couldn't get out of bed, and Ma finally called a doctor. The doctor said, how long have you been like this? My dad said, 10 days. And the doctor said, why didn't you wait another day and just call the undertaker? And it turned out my dad had pneumonia. End quote. At age 10, little John became passing out for no reason that he could figure out. They took him to the hospital many times, but no diagnosis was confirmed. John's dad thought he was doing it for attention. John's friends were his protectors for him during the years he fainted. An ambulance was even called once to the school, but his dad continued to claim he was faking. His friends did not think he was faking. One of his rec friends recalled this, quote, he had heart problems and more or less we were around to protect him in case anybody would wanted a conflict with him. What do you think, Courtney? So it's hard to know exactly what to believe when it comes to John and his medical problems. I will say that I think that John believed he had medical problems, um, but I think it's also possible that he may have suffered from conversion disorder which is when psychological problems are manifested as physical problems like passing out, pain, or pseudo-seizures. You know, in his case, we already, you know, can see that he had a lot of anxiety starting from a young age and possibly had anxiety about believing he had a heart condition. Um, so it's very possible that, you know, those fears manifested in actual, like, physical symptoms through conversion disorder. Um and it's also possible that, you know, maybe he was a kid who genuinely did have, like, one or two episodes of something that was genuine, but then kind of kept playing it up because of the attention and the care that he got because of it. Wasn't it Richard Ramirez's dad that was in the hospital super, super sick um, because they thought that a curse was on him? Yes. And then... When that person came, some person came and lifted the curse, he was automatically better. Right. I feel like we talked maybe a little bit about this then. We did. We okay. did. In 1957, when John was 15, he complained of a stomach ache. He was taken to the doctor who found nothing wrong. John's father thought that proved little John was faking. However, the pain intensified and his mom eventually took him to the hospital and it turned out his appendix had burst. Another time, John was having what seemed like seizures, and he was in the hospital for three weeks, but nothing could be determined. One of the docs suggested it might be psychological and recommended a mental hospital. John begged not to be sent there, promised to be good and not pass out anymore. His dad felt like he had the proof now that John had been faking his illness the whole time. Because, you know, if he was not faking, how could he control not passing out? Right. By the time John was 18... He was not a fine physical specimen. He was overweight, and he thought he looked like Mr. Potato Head. John didn't really date. He may not have had the confidence. What he did do was work. He had many jobs by the time he was 18, and he did volunteer work as well. He also helped his mom around the house. He was the civil defense captain in high school. He had a little light he could put on his car, and he wore a uniform, and he enjoyed pretending to be a cop with this role. He also got involved with the Democratic Party and worked as an assistant precinct captain in the 44th Ward. John was also thinking about his future in the priesthood. He was raised a Catholic, and he felt like the, quote, odd man out most of the time. The priesthood might be a good fit for what he had to offer the world. 
He became a member of the Holy Name Society and started a young adults club at St. John Birchman's or Berkman's. The club was somewhat popular. He spent much of his time doing church functions or helping repair the building or offering advice on how to weather strip something. He was pretty popular in that social circle. John was seriously considering making the church's life. He claimed that he truly enjoyed helping people and that it filled a void. He wasn't concerned about the abstinence thing because he just wasn't that interested in sex. His dad, of course, did not support his decision. He made derogatory remarks to John about his sexuality. John would later reflect that he did not think about men in a sexual way when he was younger. However, he always denied being gay. Sorry, being gay. This will be a common theme throughout this case. John's did John John's dad did something sort of nice. He bought his son a car. Well, he kept the vehicle's title in his own name until John could pay him back, which would take many years. Because he didn't technically own the car, his father would confiscate, confiscate the keys if he did not do as he was told. To outsmart the old man, John purchased an extra set of keys. He thought he was pretty clever. In response, his father removed the distributor cap, which caused the car not to run, and John didn't understand what was wrong with it. His dad kept the cap for three days. When his dad put the cap back on, John decided he had enough. He told his mommy he was going outside, and he just didn't come back. He was gone for three months. His mother was frantic looking for him, and only when a medical bill from the White Cross Insurance Company came in the mail did she realize he had gone to Las Vegas. When his mom called the hospital to look for her son, they told him that in order to pay off his bill, he was now working for them at the Palm Mortuary. John was actually living at the mortuary, sleeping on a cot behind the room where they embalmed people. Later in his life, he would tell psychiatrists that he was fascinated by the corpses, that he would do, quote, experiments on them, but he would not elaborate further. What do you think, Courtney? So what we see here is John finally challenging his father's control over him. And just like most adolescents, he did something impulsive and reckless. It was maybe a little bit on a larger scale than most adolescents, but kind of still within the realm of what we'd expect for someone who's, you know, 17, 18 years old. Um, but then you add on that he sort of was placed with this opportunity where he was left alone with human bodies with no supervision, and I think started acting out fantasies that I would assume he'd been developing in his mind probably for some time. Well, he decided he needed to go home. I think some stuff happened with him medically and he needed money and all this stuff. So John asked if he could come home. And he never graduated high school. He, it is estimated that he might have missed a year altogether from all of his hospital stays. But he somehow managed to get into Northwestern Business College, even without a diploma. He did a year-long course and did well. He graduated and got a job as a management trainee for Nunbush Shoes. By this time, he was 21 years old, and he made 65 bucks a week. John moved in with his aunt and uncle and felt finally free of his father. He was dating, and he joined the Springfield Junior Chamber of Commerce. This is also known as the JCs. In 1964, he was chosen as the J.C. Key Man for April, and in April of that year, he also married Marilyn Myers, an employee at the company he worked for. The following year, John was elected vice president and named the outstanding first-year J.C. and the third outstanding member statewide. He got many plaques, and it made him feel good. His dad had been wrong about him. His wife also got pregnant. 
His health was improving with only one hospitalization, and he enjoyed being in the limelight. One other experience that John recollects was his first sexual encounter with another man. Courtney? So I think we're starting to see how John's narcissistic traits are going to present in his life. You know, starting in his teen years when he realized that he would never live up to his father's expectations, we see him start down a path to try and gain social acceptance, adoration, and power everywhere else in his life that he possibly could. And we will definitely talk about this more in upcoming episodes. What do you think about his um, desire to maybe be part of the church, like as a occupation? Do you think that has something to do with um, that is sort of a place of power that he could be? Do you think he actually, I mean, he claims in this book that we're using that he enjoyed helping people. It made him feel good. He was good at helping people. But based on what we know about John Wayne Gacy, what do you think that really was? This is all, you know, speculation, but it, it was kind of an interesting vocation he was seriously considering. Right. Um, I think... Well, it is very possible that all of the things that he said about it were true. Um, I think it's also possible that there could have been like two other reasons for looking at the clergy. One being um, it was sort of a place where he could be, in a sense, protected from his own sexual desires that were really troubling for him um, and be protected from say, his father's comments about his sexuality, Mm -hmm. because when you're a priest, abstinence is just part of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And on the other side, um, especially, you know, back then, back in, what, like, the 50s, um, going into the early 60s, priests had a place of, like, high respect and value in the community. And so it would potentially feed into that need for, like, other people's, like, respect and and attention. And... His childhood altogether, let's just sum it up because we're kind of done with his childhood at this point. Mm-hmm. He was a born a middle child, yes. um, possibly ill, like his whole childhood, mm-hmm. um, if not truly physically ill, mentally ill enough to think he's physically ill and then manifest those things that happened to him, his fainting, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't do any exercise because of this. So he became kind of a big roly poly type of guy that wasn't very attractive. He couldn't complete his education. Um, and he never felt like he could live up to his man, his old man's expectations. So I don't know. It just, even though we're not seeing like, I mean, there is also physical abuse there. He, Mm -hmm. you know, he was beaten for a lot of things, things that weren't necessarily anything he did wrong in the first place. Not that you should ever beat your kid, but Mm -hmm. um, it sounds like his dad just wanted to beat him. Um, If, if um, he presented in a therapy type situation, what would, what would be the first thing you would do? Would you do like, what, what do you think Mm -hmm. we could have, what could you think could have happened at this point in John's life that maybe would have stopped him on his path to where he goes? Well, I think there would be, I think, a lot of work to be done with processing the relationship with his father. Um, it sounds like, in a lot of ways, John Sr. may have also had some pretty strong narcissistic traits. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we talked about 
you know, narcissism and narcissistic parents um, having a narcissistic parent who with expectations that you can never live up to um, is a risk factor for, you know, developing that that yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, I think, also plays a lot into his self-esteem, his feelings of worthiness as a man, um, and also, you know, being sexually abused at a young age. Mm -hmm. Oh, Um, yeah, I forgot about that part. Yeah, affects boys, I think, differently Mm -hmm. um, than girls, especially when it's another male perpetrator. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think really diving into and really processing all of that and how it impacted kind of his sense of identity Mm -hmm. is where I would go. And I'm, he doesn't go into it too deeply, but I'm wondering the uh, friend of his father's that, you know, supposedly molested him probably was his first introduction to grooming. And I, I'm curious if he uses those techniques later on down the road, but I don't know. I mean, he's gone now, so we can't ask and he wouldn't tell the truth anyways. But, you know, as we just like to dive into their childhoods to try to figure out what went wrong and where maybe things could have changed just throwing that out there because like I said, that's pretty much his childhood and that's where we're stopping today. Right. So, um, yeah. Anything else you want to throw out there? I came at you with a few things out of left field at the end there, but you, (laughs) you recovered very well. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) I mean, I think Gacy had a lot to say, so I feel like I have some more insight Mm -hmm. into him than like some of our other killers who didn't like to talk about themselves. Yeah. This book is kind of a, interesting read because the author sort of takes almost like a first person stand for Gacy right it's like telling the story in Gacy's words yeah and in a very delusional seeming fashion like if if Gacy really did believe what he's saying which he might I don't know or he's just lying through his teeth Mm -hmm. but you know we will also see a theme with him is being a victim Yes. He plays the victim card a lot. He's very good at it. Yes. So anyways, that's about it. And we will see you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.